Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Clearly, it's a different podcast to normal, not the episode we had planned. But we still wanted to bring you some of the analysis, reflections on Her Majesty the Queen. And as we look ahead to a new political era too, a new Prime Minister and a new King. In a moment, my history of the Queen and her Prime Ministers. This weekend, we'll see the proclamation of King Charles III. It will take place in the Accession Council at St James's Palace. In theory, hundreds of members of the Privy Council should be in attendance, or they won't all fit in the room. But former presidents of the Privy Council will be there. The current president of the Privy Council, Penny Morden, just a few months ago, was running to be Tory leader and Prime Minister and will instead have the solemn duty of proclaiming the new monarch. Someone else who will be in that room is Sir David Liddington, who was Theresa May's Deputy Prime Minister. But as a former leader of the House of Commons, he was also a president of the Privy Council. And I spoke to him earlier. It existed, you know, as if you like, the sovereign's advisory body in the sort of modern formal sense since mid-Tudor times. Um, obviously, in a sort of less formal way, the, the, the kings of medieval times had a council of the great nobles of the country to advise them. Um, but the Privy Council was originally the senior advisory body, the cabinet. I think in, it's, it's still technically, in constitutional terms, a subcommittee of the Privy Council. But the Privy Council you know, gives the title, right honourable, to cabinet ministers, some other senior ministers, the, the first ministers of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, if they want it, um, uh, usually realm, so Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, premiers and, and other senior people, high court judges. Um, so the, it's quite a wide range. Um, but the Working Privy Council that meets the sovereign once a month, um, with the sovereign there present, um, is made up of usually four or five of senior ministers from the government of the day, and the Lord President of the Council, as you say, is is, is usually paired with the, the, the job of Leader of the House of Commons, acts as the sort of convener of business, and, and um, you get, you know, if you're Lord President, you go in to see the Queen on your own before those monthly Privy Council meetings, and and, and those I, I always look forward to. I was actually terrified first time I went in, <laughs> first time I'd ever you know, met her on my own, but you know, she was, everybody says, you know, she was, she was brilliant. She always was brilliant at putting people at their ease. She knew that they'd be a bundle of nerves. And I used to look forward to those meetings very much. I remember, David, um, speaking to whips. There's a role of one of the, one of the uh, government whips each day sends a note to the Queen on the business. But also, I was often told that she, she enjoyed the gossip. She wanted to know what was going on. There was there yeah. a sense that sometimes she wanted to know uh, tidbits of gossip from, from Westminster too? Oh, yes. And, and she, she certainly, you know, my understanding is she would read those uh, reports of one of the senior whips uh, very assiduously, as she did all the papers and reports that, that went into her red box daily. Um, and yes, yeah, sometimes, you know, when I was in seeing her, she would, go, on my own, she would gossip a bit about, ask some questions about current events and and what was going on. And, and my goodness, you know, she was always formidably brief, well-informed, but also, you know, somebody who stood up above and you know, beyond party politics and who had been head of state for so long, there was a certain wry detachment from it. And, and, and I, I suspect she would never have been so underground. I suspect sometimes she might have you know, looked at the, the politicians who come and go and, you know, sort of bit of a bit of an inward grin, perhaps. Um, but, um, you know, she, 
she was always somebody who was, I think, seemed to, was was infectious in her her sort of zest for public service. That if she was talking to you about uh, an engagement that she she got, she was talk, tell, talking to me once about old opening a new old people's residential care home, and you know. You just thought, gosh, she's been doing this for decades. It must be very boring by now. But no, you know, it, she was wanted to tell me about how impressed she'd been, how the, the thought that had gone into not just the physical design, but the routines and activities for the residents there. And, and that she was very good news um, for the quality of care. And she was somebody who found that sense of fulfillment and, and interest and engagement in what so many of us, you know, might, regard as fairly mundane task <laughs> and, and continued that zest for decades. So, David, turn our attention to uh, tomorrow in this meeting the Accession Council. What, what's your, what role will you have to play? Your thoughts ahead of attending an extraordinary, well, extraordinary moment that you, you, you know, when you were made leader of the Commons uh, or Lord, uh, the, the, the President of the Privy Council, you wouldn't have expected, presumably necessarily, to have been in the room for the proclamation of the of the monarch no no um and it's obviously it's it, it's a day that we all knew was inevitable given the queen's age but which you, you kept hoping wouldn't wouldn't come um but the, the summons to the accession council will go out to those privy councillors who are summoned uh, uh probably sometime later today um the the ceremony is a, a very formal one that that the the announcement is formally made um i think by the uh the the current lord 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 president who will be, will be penny mordant of the death of the queen and the accession of king charles iii um and the the king would then come into the room the queen would, wouldn't be there for that first stage um there are one or two oaths that the uh, the, the new sovereign swears including to uh, protect the rights of the church in Scotland, which is very important in terms of Scottish constitutional arrangements. Um, and then the approval is given to the formal text of the proclamation announcing the change of sovereign. And that's then the, the heralds, you know, those guys who turn up in the very decorative costume, the tabards um, for big state occasions, they go and, you know, read it out, physically proclaim it um, in a couple of locations in London and then that is repeated by mayors and others elsewhere around the country. So David Lillington there. Now, it won't surprise you that here on the podcast, we want to reflect on the politics of the last 70 years and the prime ministers who the Queen knew. It's extraordinary that when the young Elizabeth became Queen in 1952, she inherited a prime minister in Winston Churchill more than twice her age. And by the time she invited her 15th prime minister to form a government just last week, she was more than twice Liz Truss's age. Indeed, Winston Churchill had been born 101 years before Liz Truss. The Queen witnessed 18 general elections, 13 government referendums, three minority governments and one coalition. And viewers of The Crown on Netflix might believe they know something of what went on in her private relationships with her premiers. But so much of what happens in politics and royal circles is the subject of leaks and gossip. But those weekly audiences remained... Totally secret. Well, almost. In fact, what emerged was mostly a sense of relief on the part of the politician, on the part of the Prime Minister, that each week 
they had someone with whom they could be completely honest and who they could trust. And let me tell you, that's a rare conversation in Westminster. Well, earlier this week, as the Queen was inviting Liz Truss to form a government, Royal commentator Hugo Vickers told me how Prime Ministers have valued her wisdom over 70 years. I know that we only hear things about how the Queen gets on with her Prime Ministers from the Prime Ministers themselves. We never hear it from the Queen. <laughs> However, um, Blair did say that when he went there to, to Buckingham Palace, obviously, the Queen did actually sort of drop in the line that, uh, of course, he hadn't been born when she came to the throne. Well, you know, Liz Truss was born two years before the Queen celebrated her Silver Jubilee. So that's kind of interesting. Um I think, uh, of course, people talk a lot about the, what actually happens. And I, I can tell you that when Anthony Eden went along to Buckingham Palace in 1955, when Churchill finally agreed to step down, they had such a good conversation that he began to wonder whether she was actually going to ask him to form a government at all. And there came a point in the conversation when he said, well, ma'am, at which point she said, I suppose I'd better ask you to form a government. <laughs> anyway, it always happens. And lots of them in history have said, well, it's about the only conversation they can be confident isn't going to leak. That actually her role as a, as a, I don't know what you call it, a sounding board or a, or, or a, a source of guidance has, has sort of grown over the years. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, Churchill, when she first came to the throne, um, he, he said, oh, she's just a girl. But actually, very quickly, he discovered that they had lots to talk about. They used to like talking about racing, for example. But he, <laughs> he loved his meetings with her. And of course, he was a great um, guide to her sort of grandfather type of figure. The Queen is um, actually blessed with an incredibly good memory. And I think that's one of the things which has served her so well as a constitutional monarch. Um, so she, so if a prime minister goes along and says such and such a thing is happening, she can always say to them, well, steady on, this is what happened in 1958, and that's how we dealt with it then. They don't have to listen to what she says or do anything, but they would be very well advised to, because she, as you say, she's very wise. She's a, a, acquired a lot of accumulated wisdom because she's been well informed for over 70 years. That's Hugo Vickers speaking to me earlier this week. Well, by back in 1952, when... Young Elizabeth became the Queen. Winston Churchill was past his wartime best, but he remained a political giant. But what could a 77-year-old find to talk about with a new monarch then just 26? Well, horse racing, apparently. There's said to be lots of laughter as they met each Wednesday at six o'clock. Uh, Sir Alan, or Tommy Lascelles, her first private secretary, recorded in his memoirs that Winston was heavily in love with her and generally came out with tears running down his cheeks because he was laughing. Well, Churchill uh, resigned in 1955 as a result of poor health, making way for Anthony Eden, who apparently relished his weekly audiences to get her, as he described it, wise and impartial reaction to events, which was quite simply the voice of the land. Perhaps less so, though, during the Suez crisis of 1956, when the deluge of official and secret papers sent to the Queen by her foreign office meant that, extraordinarily, she knew far more than even some ministers in her own government and the leaders of other members of the Commonwealth, which, of course, she, she so treasured. I think the Queen believed Eden was mad, one palace aide told the royal biographer Ben Pimlot when Eden invaded Egypt during the Suez Crisis. Another courtier once recalled, she may have said to Eden something like, are you sure you're being wise? In truth, of course, he wasn't. The excursion cost him his premiership and his reputation. When Conservative Prime Minister Hal Macmillan had his first audience in 1957, he'd warned the Queen, as he said, half in joke, half in earnest, that he could not answer for the new government lasting more than six weeks. He recorded in his diary that she reminded him of this at his audience 
six years later. Macmillan also said he was astonished at the Queen's grasp of all the details set out in various messages and telegrams. She described, he described her as a great support because she is the one person you can talk to. In fact, she was the only person he wished to speak to when it became clear that ill health meant that he too would have to step aside. This was back in the days when not even Tory MPs, never mind party members, got to choose their leader. And said Conservative leaders sort of emerged from a strange process of soundings in smoke-filled rooms. Well, lying in bed in a prostate, uh, lying in bed after a prostate operation, Macmillan connived to ensure that his deputy, Rab Butler, didn't get the job of becoming Prime Minister. Within 45 minutes of him resigning, the Queen was at Macmillan's hospital bedside for one final audience. She asked him for his advice on who should be the next Prime Minister. He suggested that she should call for Lord Hume, who would later relinquish his title to become Sir Alec Douglas Hume. And she agreed. It meant that Butler would never make it to number 10. Hume, though, only lasted a year in office before, in 1964, Harold Wilson became her first Labour Prime Minister, more than 12 years after she first became Queen. Now, on the face of it, you'd think they'd have little in common with the grammar schoolboy from Yorkshire, but they were said to have got on well, with their meetings getting longer and longer, some lasting up to two hours. But yet there were tensions too between the, the Prime Minister, the 1960s Prime Minister, the swinging 60s Prime Minister of Howard Wilson, and the Queen. In 1966, disaster struck in the Welsh coal mining village of Aberfan. After a heavy rain, a coal heap slipped down the hill and into the village, killing 116 children and 28 adults. It later emerged that the Queen said her greatest regret was not travelling to Aberfan sooner. Here's the broadcaster, John Humphreys, talking to me about Aberfan last year. The fairly shocking aspect of that, of course, was that the Queen did not go immediately. She heard about it, unlike the, the Prime Minister at the time, Harold Wilson. She uh, took her a week to get down there. Um, and some say that that showed that she didn't care. And it caused her a lot of harm, I think. I don't know she herself regarded it, I think, as the, um, as the worst misjudgment she'd ever made. Uh, because, of course, we all expected her to arrive the next day. But she didn't, as I say. It took, it, it took a week. Uh, that was John Humphrey speaking to me last year. Well, unlike Wilson, his successor, Conservative Edward Heath, apparently the Queen found him hard-going, we're told. He struggled with small talk and uh, women in general. At their first meeting in 1970, he panicked and asked if she'd been busy lately. That, the Queen replied sharply, is the sort of question Lord Mayors ask when I visit cities. The Queen's passion for the Commonwealth actually often clashed with Heath's commitment to the European cause, and there was a tense standoff over her plans to attend the first meeting of Commonwealth leaders in Singapore in 1971, with Heath warning of, of a furious reaction to his plans to resume arms sales to South Africa. A summit, yes, at Balmoral was called, where she gave in and agreed not to attend. No wonder there were suggestions she was pleased when Wilson returned in 1974. When ill health forced him to retire, he invited the Queen to Number 10 for a farewell dinner. It was the first time she'd been there since a banquet to mark Churchill's departure 21 years earlier. For Wilson's replacement, Jim Callaghan, Prime Minister Number 7, was only in office for three years, but it was a time of huge political and social turmoil, including one of those minority governments. 
What one gets is friendliness, but not friendship, Callahan said later. Conversation flowed easily and could roam anywhere over a wide range of social as well as political and international topics. Britain was changing in the late 1970s. In 1979, its first female prime minister brought with it talk of spats with its female monarch. When the Queen was, well, the queen was an old-fashioned countrywoman, a, a small-c conservative, Margaret Thatcher was a no-nonsense radical. The truth of what went on between the Queen and Margaret Thatcher is now lost to history. Whatever tensions there may have been day to day, she later bestowed upon her Prime Minister the Order of Merit and the honour of attending her funeral in 2013. Then Margaret Thatcher went on to be the longest-serving Prime Minister in 150 years, secured her place in history alongside the monarch that she served. In John Major, the Queen had, for the first time, a Prime Minister younger than her. And after such a long time with Thatcher, he was perhaps a more genial presence. But at this time, there was also private family trauma, divorces and uh, family splits, and also the public tragedy of the Windsor Castle fire. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. (laughs) I suspect that I'm not alone in thinking it so. Indeed, I suspect that there are very few people or institutions unaffected by these last months of worldwide turmoil and uncertainty. This generosity and wholehearted kindness of the corporation of the city to Prince Philip and me would be welcome at any time. But at this particular moment, in the aftermath of Friday's tragic fire at Windsor, it is especially so. There were also political trials and questions about money and paying of income tax. All that happened around this time. And the loss of the Royal Yacht Britannia was both symbolic and deeply personal. From his side, John Major nonetheless loved his meetings with the Queen. In June this year, he told the BBC's Today programme he was so fond of the Queen that he would have happily invited her to join the Cabinet. The one thing about the meetings with the Queen, nobody is there, just, just the corgis, behaving or not, as the case may be, usually behaving. And you could speak in absolute privacy. There's no private secretary there. No notes are made. You can say exactly what you wish, exactly what is on your mind, and so can uh, the Queen. So that is very valuable. You ask if she's a good listener. Uh, Yes, she is. But I think more relevantly, she's a good questioner. She's a good questioner. Uh, Gently, she asks the right questions. And I think people would be surprised at the depth of knowledge she has of how people who are not close to the monarchy actually live in their own lives. She knows a great deal about it, and her questions are often very, uh, very pertinent. And it was always extremely useful, because it was a completely external view from someone who knew politics, who had been looking at state papers for 28 years at the time I became Prime Minister. There is no one in the world who has ever seen as many state papers over such a long period as the Queen. And, of course, she has learned uh, a great deal from that. And I often came away away from those meetings 
thinking to myself, what a shame she isn't in the cabinet. <laughs> John made it there speaking to the BBC earlier this year. Well, Tony Blair was born in the year of the Queen's coronation. His arrival as Labour Prime Minister in 1997 brought sweeping change to the country. And when a few months later Princess Diana died, it brought change to the monarchy too. After a few missteps, with Blair's tribute to the People's Princess capturing the mood more sure-footedly than the Crown, the Queen returned to Buckingham Palace and addressed the nation. The message was clear. She was back in charge. Since last Sunday's dreadful news... We have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. There's a Queen addressing the nation there following the death of Princess Diana in 1997. And the culture clash between the traditional substance of the monarchy and the style of New Labour occasionally resurfaced over the years, not least perhaps at the turn of the century, the Millennium Dome. The Queen having to join in with Old Lang Syne and having watched that spectacle unfold. Well, Tony Blair has spoken in the past about how he initially found meeting her well, intimidating. The first Prime Minister she's dealt with was Winston Churchill, so... <laughs> you know, put, um, it it uh, put me in perspective, as it were. But, um, but then uh, there are times sometimes when I will ask her about what it was like in previous times with previous Prime Ministers, and, of course, she's got such a huge fund of stories and history to draw upon. You just understand this person has lived through this chapter of our history and seen all these changing times and the accumulated amount of experience and knowledge is, is immense and actually very valuable for whoever who is Prime Minister. You know, when you're in a position where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility on you, that's a tremendous bonus. She will assess situations and difficulties and can describe them, but without ever... And I have to say this is the remarkable thing in all the years now I've been doing these audiences without ever giving any clues to sort of political preference or anything like that. I mean, it's absolutely, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable to see, in fact. There's Tony Brown in an interview uh, with the Royal Family website. Well, Gordon Brown was less showy, but as the Times reports, he was responsible for one of the Prime Minister, <laughs> more amusing Prime Ministerial moments of her reign. And Gordon Brown appeared to get lost at a state banquet at Windsor Castle after walking the wrong way around the banqueting table. Has the Prime Minister got lost, the Queen asked. He disappeared the wrong way at the crucial moment. Well, speaking to ITV News last night after news of her death uh, emerged, Gordon Brown paid tribute to the Queen and remembered fondly his meetings with her. She was conscientious. She was considerate. She was caring. She had a great sense of humour. She was endlessly patient, even when talking about the details of a boring budget. 
But most of all, what shone through was her complete and utter dedication to the country and to the Constitution. Well, David Cameron, who replaced Gordon Brown in 2010, might pride himself as a traditionalist, but occasionally he forgot the tradition of not discussing his conversations with the Queen. Most notably when he was caught on a microphone claiming she purred down the phone when he called her to say that Scotland had voted to stay in the Union in 2014. A grovelling apology ensued. Well, three years ago, I spoke to David Cameron about his relationship with the Queen. What's going through your mind on the way to Buckingham Palace is really, you can't believe it's happening, you can't believe you're going to see the Queen, but you're also worrying hugely about what you're going to say on the steps of Downing Street, because it's one of those moments you know is very important, A, not to fall over and screw up, but B, to (laughs) set the tone for your government. And it's not a moment, I think, where you should put out some great big script and stand at a lectern. People want to see you standing there saying your piece from the heart about what you want to do. So I was intensely worried about not forgetting what I wanted to say. Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I have accepted. But the sort of uh, the excitement of it is, is, a, is an extraordinary moment. When you're driving up the Mall to see the Queen, you can't really believe it's happening. So you, you go and see the Queen, you kiss hands? What's, explain- the kissing hands thing isn't, that's not quite right. You, you, when you join the Privy Council, you have to kiss hands. When you form a government, there's no kissing involved. You, you go and you, you know, seek permission to form a government. It's so much accepted that that's why you're going, that that conversation barely even takes place. But that's, 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 sort that's, of what's, the, that's, that's what's happening. And, and obviously in my case, in 2010, because the coalition hadn't... We hadn't absolutely pulled it all together before Gordon Brown resigned... I was in this position of sort of saying, um, I'd like to form a government. I can't tell you exactly what sort of government it's going to be. I hope it's going to be a coalition, but, but can I get back to you? And as I was doing that, I was thinking, this is, although Her Majesty the Queen has seen everything, this is actually something in her reign that is novel. You talk about when you go into Buckingham Palace, almost sort of having to step over sleeping corgis. and Yes, yeah, so it's the same. You, you, and then you have your weekly audience, and you sort of, go in pretty much the same door every time and up in the lift with the same private secretary. And then the corgis almost seem to be asleep in the same places. <laughs> so it's a, it, it becomes a very familiar part of your week. And you go and sit in the same room waiting for the audience to start and then off you go. You, you got into a bit of trouble when you let slip one of your conversations with the Queen, when you said that she purred. Oh, I was, I was so... It was after a, the Scottish independence. Embar- it was very, very stupid of me. I was talking to Mike Bloomberg... Um, and I should never have said it anyway, but I said it when there was a camera and a microphone that picked up what I said, and oh, it was, it was um, terrible. Anyway, I apologised, grovelled uh, a lot. <laughs> did you get um, on with the Queen? Was she, did you... I, they were great meetings because in this hectic life that I've tried to explain of all the different things you're juggling and doing, it's like a sort of fixed point. You know, every Wednesday at six o'clock, off you go, and there's only two of you in the room, there's no one taking notes. There's no one else listening. And I often found, as you were trying to explain what had happened that week, A, you were listening to the world's greatest public servant, but B, as you're explaining it, sometimes it clarified things in your own mind because your week's so hectic, there isn't much time when you sit and actually just think through what has happened. Um, and she always asks incredibly perceptive uh, questions. So I found, and, and as I think Tony Blair put it very well, he said, you know, there isn't a prime minister who doesn't walk out of that room feeling two inches taller, and you do, because you've just spent time with 
one of the most remarkable people in the world. And given that her first Prime Minister was Winston Churchill, <clears throat> there's a slight sense that what might well, seem that, like that a, is the problem, a is, terrible is, moment yes. for you, she might think, well, I've seen all this well, before. That cuts both ways. You think uh, you've, you've seen extraordinary times in our nation's history. But also, as you're sort of saying, what's wrong with your health reforms or why the economy isn't growing fast enough, you sort of think, oh, gosh, you know, I'm Prime Minister number 12. She's literally heard all this before. <laughs> Every excuse in the book, you know, there's no, there's no hiding place. But uh, no, they were, they were, I think it's a, as Badgett would call it, a dignified part of our constitution, but it's also quite an efficient one. I think it helps the Prime Minister do their job. And you also, one of the perks of the job, if you like, is you also get to go to Balmoral. And, yes. And that seems more relaxed. Yes, uh, I mean, it sort of seems to... odd to say, uh, I mean, there you are, you're going to stay in a castle in Scotland and you're saying, as I say in the book, that it's very relaxing. And also you see the royal family in relaxation. I think, I mean, it is a haven for them and... I think they, they, they love the highlands and all that it involves and walks and picnics and and And, and the barbecue. And the, rest the, barbecue. the barbecue is extraordinary. So you get into a car at sort of seven o'clock at night, often driven by the Queen herself, driven at breakneck speed up onto the moor. And uh, she told me that when the King of Saudi Arabia stayed, that she drove him. And so he, she's the only woman to have driven the King of Saudi Arabia. And I, I had this, and when I went to Saudi Arabia, the King of Saudi Arabia told me that story. So I have this, as you'd say, double source, this, double source. This story. And, and then off you go to a sort of bothier, old um, shepherd's, um, not a shepherd's hut, a, a sort of <laughs> shepherd's house almost, up on, the, up on the hill. And there's the Duke of Edinburgh cooking grouse on a barbecue, a barbecue that he himself has, has designed and built. And that is, that's extraordinary to, to sort of be cooked for by... Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Philip. It's David Cameron speaking to me three years ago about his relationship uh, with the Queen. And he was, of course, replaced in 2016 by Theresa May, who, let's be honest, has a reputation of being hard work in private, not lo- one of life's great conversationalists. And yet her love of hill walking and the great outdoors gave her common ground with the Queen, which would have helped smooth things over when she had to go to the palace in 2017 and explained why she'd misplaced her majority. Aside from official duties, however, I've also had the opportunity to see Her Majesty in more relaxed times. I speak particularly of the Prime Minister's weekends at Balmoral. And what is absolutely clear there is Her Majesty's great desire for all her guests to be relaxed and enjoy themselves. And she takes great care to put people at ease and to ensure that they are enjoying the benefits of the beautiful Scottish countryside. But it was also uh, an example of a time at Balmoral that I saw Her Majesty's great love and understanding of the countryside. She was driving us to a place where we were going to have uh, one of the famous evening barbecues. And uh, there was a gate in the track, and in front of the gate stood a very large stag. Her Majesty had slammed on the brakes and said, what's he doing here? (laughs) To most drivers, that would have meant, why is he in my way? But not to Her Majesty. As she explained, she knew that the deer should be on a different part of the hillside. She couldn't understand why he had come down so low. She knew the countryside. She knew its animals. Boris Johnson's relationship with the Queen got off to a rocky start three years ago. He dispatched Jacob Rees-Bogg, yes, to Balmoral to ask the Queen to prorogue Parliament, a nuclear option to break the Brexit deadlock. That was later ruled unlawful, though the embarrassment was all hers. And 
all his, of course, and not hers. And I know, Madam Deputy Speaker, that Prime Ministers are not supposed to relay their conversations with the Queen, and I will not, except to say that her knowledge and understanding of politics and world affairs is profound. And there have been times, uh, I'm sure the the Honourable Gentleman uh, knows whereof he speaks, there have been times when I've been scrabbling to remember a historical date or the name of some African capital, and she's got there first. And when it comes to anything equestrian, I'm simply nowhere. (laughs) And I bet I speak for every Prime Minister who has ever had an audience with Her Majesty when I say that our conversations are always immensely comforting. And so to number 15, the last public engagement for the Queen this week to invite Liz Truss to form a government. Now, having only met her once in what turned out to be just two days before her passing, Prime Minister Liz Truss described the Queen last night as the rock on which Britain was built. Queen Elizabeth II provided us with the stability and the strength that we needed. She was the very spirit of Great Britain, and that spirit will endure. Having spoken to several former Prime Ministers over the years who've told me about how how much they valued those conversations with the Queen as a private voice of experience, as we've, we've been hearing in this half hour. And I suppose it's that experience that Liz Truss will sorely miss today and in the coming days as she approaches being a, a new Prime Minister in the new era of a new monarch in King Charles.